You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Now will you turn to John chapter 7. John chapter 7, and when you've found your place there, we will pray together. Our Father, it is to your word that we now turn, and we are grateful that you have given us a revelation that reveals who you are and what you have done for us in your Son. We pray that you would help us to understand some of the deep things of our God, some of these deep doctrines that are here revealed in Scripture and elsewhere. Our desire is that we might think rightly about what you have done and what you have purposed and planned in the death of your Son. We pray that you would glorify yourself by opening our eyes to your word this morning. We are dependent upon the ministry of the Spirit of God to instruct us and to teach us and to illuminate your word to our hearts and our minds. We ask that that might be the case here for the glory of our triune God. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, today is Palm Sunday. This is the day that, um, on which Jesus triumphantly entered into the city of Jerusalem on the colt, the foal of a donkey, to the hail of the crowds who said, uh, Hosanna, Hosanna, son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And on that day, Jesus rode in triumphantly on the back of a donkey. And that event is recorded in all four of the gospel, all four of the gospels by all four gospel writers. And that hail of the crowd, which on Friday or Sunday hailed him as king, would on Friday call him a criminal. And those who had once sung his praises on Sunday would the following Friday be calling for his blood and be singing, crucify him, crucify him. And so Palm Sunday gives us the opportunity to reflect upon the nature of the death of Christ and what the intention of God was in the death of his son and how God planned that and what God has done in and through that death of Christ. And that is what we've been talking about in John chapter 7. And we noticed, even going back as far as the end of John chapter 6, that there was a dark and foreboding tone that sort of hangs over chapter 7. It begins in chapter 6 at the very end of the chapter, verse 71, where we are told that Judas Iscariot was the one who would betray Jesus. And then in chapter 7, verse 1, we find out that the Jews were seeking to kill Jesus. Then in chapter 7, verse 11, when his brothers arrived in Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles, we read that the Jews there were seeking him at the feast, saying, where is he? And Jesus knew about the plot to kill him, which is why in verse 19 he confronts the Jews with their murderous intention and says, why do you seek to kill me? And in verse 20 they denied it, who seeks to kill you? And that was known by everybody in Jerusalem, verse 25, some of the people in Jerusalem were saying, is this not the man whom they are seeking to kill? What is amazing about John 7 is that the death of, the death of Christ and the intention to kill him was being spoken of by everybody. Everybody was talking about it. The Jews were talking about it. The leaders were talking about it. The crowds were talking about it. Jesus was talking about it. Everybody knew about it. This was the discussion that's going on all the way through chapter 7, their intention to kill him. And yet, in the midst of it, this is what is amazing, in the midst of it, Jesus seems totally uh, unflappable by it. I don't know if that's what... Yeah, that's the word. Un, unfazed by it entirely, their plots and their plans. It's like he doesn't even care. And he's sitting in the temple teaching publicly, unhindered, openly and boldly, Nobody's laying hands on him. Nobody is seizing him. He's talking about their intention to kill him. 
You and I would be running for a cave, seeking asylum, pleading with the leaders to do something to protect us. We would hire bodyguards. We would do anything in our power to prevent this going on. And Jesus seems completely unfazed by their plans to take his life. It's just everybody's talking about it. It's like, the, it's like you and I discuss sports or the weather. Everybody's discussing it. And he's completely unfazed. And he's teaching boldly in the temple. This was the subject matter of the day. We're going to kill you. Our desire is to kill you. Jesus knew it. Your desire is to kill me. Everybody's talking about it. Their desire is to kill him. This is the headline of the day. It's amazing to me that Jesus does absolutely nothing that would appear to us to be an act of fear or an act of cowardice. And it is because Jesus knew that his time, his hour, had not yet come. You know what else is amazing? It's occurred to me this last week. The Jews were not the only ones who were intending to kill Jesus. Do you know who else was intending to kill Jesus? The Father. God was intending to kill Jesus. You realize that the Jews and God, the triune God, both had the same intention? The death of the Son. His intention, his death was no accident. The Jews were seeking to kill him. The triune God was seeking to kill him. Jesus knew that he came to offer his life as a ransom for many. He didn't come to be served, but to give his life as a ransom for many. So the Father's intention was to send the Son into the world because the Father was going to kill the Son in the stead of sinners. And the intention of the Jews was to kill the Son. But there's a problem in John 7, and that is that it was not the right time. Both of them had the same intentions. But the timing was different, the manner was different, and the goal of that event was different. The timing was different. It was entirely different. The Jews, if they had their way, would have killed him in John chapter 7, right? That was what they were seeking to do. That was what everybody was talking about. Everybody knew that. The Jews, if they had their way, actually, if the Jews had had their way, they would have killed him back in chapter 5 when he claimed equality with God. And they wanted to stone him then because he made himself out to be equal with God, calling God his own father. Chapter 5, verse 18. So they started, they wanted to kill him back 18 months before John chapter 7. But it was not the timing of the Father in John 7, and it wasn't the timing of the Father in John 5. It was the intention of the Father that the Son should die, but it was not the right time. The right time would be six months after John 7, not in September, October at the Feast of Tabernacles, but the right timing would be the following Passover, six months after John 7, in late March or early April, depending on your chronology, at the following Passover. Because Jesus is the Passover Lamb, And he would die on a cross in the place of sinners and shed his blood so that the wrath of God would be satisfied against those sinners. Since that was the intention of the Father, it had to happen at Passover. That was the timing of the Father. And Jesus knew that his hour had not yet come. The Father, of course, knew that his hour had not yet come. So even though both the Jews and the Father are planning to kill Jesus, the timing was not right for the Father. A second thing was different. The manner. If the Jews had had their way in John chapter 7, how would Jesus have died? They would have stoned him. They would have picked up stones to stone him. They did this later on in chapter 8. In fact, if you look at chapter 8, verse 58, 59, Therefore they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Later on in John chapter 10, verse 31, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. And Jesus answered them, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you seeking to stone me? So their their chosen method of death for him at this juncture probably would have been stoning. On two very near subsequent occasions, they had picked up rocks to stone him. But was that the Father's intended manner to kill the Son? It was crucifixion. Isaiah 53, Zechariah 12, Psalm 22, and a host of other Old Testament prophecies predicted a death that could only be fulfilled by crucifixion. So what was the Father's intention? The Father's intention was not that he would be stoned for blasphemy. The Father's intention was that he'd be crucified and hung on a Roman cross on Passover. Both the Jews and the Father were intending the same event, ultimately. 
but with different timing and with a different manner and also with a different goal. What was the goal of the Jews in killing the sun? Just to rid themselves of the light, right? Every time he opens his mouth, he exposes our unfruitful deeds of darkness. He exposes our sinful, rebellious unbelief. Every time he speaks, he reminds us of our sin and our need to trust in him, that we need a sacrifice and a savior. They hated being told that. They hated the light. And because they loved darkness and hated the light, they wanted to extinguish the light and to rid themselves of that. That was their goal. But what was the goal of the Father in the crucifixion of the Son? It was a different goal. The goal of the Father in crucifying the Son was to lay upon the Son all of the sins of all who would believe upon Him. All of the sins of the elect, all of the sins of the righteous, any and all who would turn to Him for salvation would find their sins were atoned for and paid for in the death of His Son. That was the intention of the Father. The intention of the Father was that Christ should die for His sheep, that He would give His life for His bride, the church. So the intention of the Jews was to rid themselves of the light. The intention of the Father was to provide a sacrifice, an atonement, which was sufficient to atone for the sins of any who would repent and trust the Christ, uh, trust the Son for salvation. So the timing was different, the manner was different, and the goal was different. But eventually, six months after John chapter 7, all of this would come to a focal point when the hour finally arrived, and the Father's timing matched the timing of the Jews, and the Father's manner matched the manner of the Jews, and when the Father could see that His intentions in the death of His Son could be met, then all of this would come together at the appointed hour. That brings us to John chapter 7, verse 30, which is our text for this morning. John 7, verse 30, where we read, So they were seeking to seize Him, and no man laid his hand on Him, because His hour had not yet come. This, I think, is one of the most marvelous verses in all of John chapter 7. In this verse, we see basically two things that are contrasted. We have the sinful intentions of man. They were seeking to seize him, to grab hold of him, because they wanted to kill him. That's the sinful plans of men. We see that contrasted with the sovereign plan of God. No man was able to lay his hands on him because his hour had not yet come. So we see two things in verse 30. The sinful plans of men and the sovereign plan of God. And these, what we see there is that the one is going to take precedence over the other. No matter what these men intended to do, what's going to happen? Nothing can happen unless the Father wills that it happen. So we look at those two things, the contrast between the sinful plans of men and the sovereign plan of God. Let's begin with the sinful plans of men. Verse 30, they were seeking to seize him. They were seeking to seize him. I mentioned last week there was a bit of a dilemma in chapter 7, ending in verse 29. You remember what that dilemma was? They had three options. He's teaching publicly in the temple, and they had three options. Number one, they could seize him. If they seize him, they risk sparking a riot and losing their nation, right? The second option is they could argue with him publicly, try and refute him. But how did that work out for him? Every time they tried it, they found themselves on the losing end of that argument. Or they had the third option. They could leave him alone and let him teach in the temple. But then they risked losing disciples and people believing in him and a crowd gathering around him. So they couldn't do any of those. They didn't want to seize him. They didn't want to argue with him. They didn't want to leave him alone. But eventually, Jesus forced their hand in verse 30. By teaching in the temple, he forced them to take some action to do something to stop him from teaching in the temple. So they tried to seize him. And that was their intention all along, wasn't it? You remember up in verse 11? They were seeking to kill him, and when his brothers arrived in Jerusalem, they sought to to seize him. They were looking for him. They wanted to lay hands on him. If the Jews had had their way, Jesus, when he came to Jerusalem, they would have got him before he got to the temple, before he made himself public, before anybody noticed he was there. They would have taken him under the cover of darkness, if possible, and escorted him out of there and killed him. That would have been their intention. They didn't want him gathering a crowd around him, but Jesus came up and finally revealed himself in the temple publicly. And then they're kind of, whoa, 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 what do we do? Well, now they've got this dilemma. What do we do with him? Well, Jesus forced their hand. 
Now they have to seize him. What would have sparked their intention to seize him? What is it that motivated him? Was it the fact that Jesus had made them look like fools that day in teaching them and pointing out the hypocrisy of their stand on the Sabbath and how they circumcised a boy on the Sabbath and didn't claim that was a violation of the Sabbath and yet they criticized him for healing a whole man? Was it that? Or might it have been the fact that uh, that very day Jesus had made all those messianic claims and claiming to be sent by the Father and to claim to have a relationship with the Father? Maybe it was the fact that he had insulted them by telling them that they didn't have any relationship with the Father, which was a huge insult to the Jews who trafficked in the law and prided themselves on their knowledge of God. Which one of which one of those things was it that finally broke the camel's back, as it were? It's hard to tell, isn't it? It could have been any or all of those. But finally they realized, we have to do something, or we are going to risk him continuing to teach. So they tried to seize him. That was their sinful plan. That was their intention all along. This seems to be a, a spontaneous action, a spontaneous plan, as opposed to verse 32. I want you to look down at verse 32 real quick. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things, and the crowd is saying, uh, look, could this be the Christ because nobody else, verse 31, does the signs that this man does? The Pharisees heard that the crowd was starting to come to this conclusion. Some were believing on him. So verse 32 says, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to seize him. Now that's an organized arrest effort. The attempt to seize him in verse 30 seems a bit spontaneous. They're in the crowd, they're in the temple, he is teaching, and they finally just say, we, we've got to, we've got to stop it. We, better late than never. Let's jump on him, let's seize him, let's drag him out of here. There might be a riot, we might face some opposition, but let's deal with this. Verse 32 is a bit more plotted and planned. They actually get the officers and probably an arrest warrant of some sort, and they go to arrest him and go to try and they, they have an armed force that is seeking to arrest him in verse 32. What we see in verse 30 is the dark, unbelieving, hateful intentions of the Jews toward Jesus when they are seeking to seize him. And by the way, when we say they're seeking to seize him, it's not because they wanted to invite him to coffee. It's not because they wanted to talk with him privately. What were they trying to do? They are attempting to kill him. They're attempting to kill him. That is the sinful plans of men. Now, before we move on, I want to state something that is, I think, really obvious. The reason I say it's obvious is because, uh, the reason I'm going to state this is because I'm about to contrast the sinful plans of men with the sovereign plan of God. And I want to state something obvious because sometimes it's the obvious things that we miss. So are you ready for this? Here it is. Here's the obvious statement, the obvious truth. Sinful men make sinful plans. Profound? Sinful men make sinful plans. In fact, I would submit to you that sinful men are incapable of making any other type of plans. Sinful men are incapable of doing anything pleasing to God or anything good. An unbeliever, and I'm not talking about redeemed sinners, I'm talking about unbelieving, darkness-loving sinners, they are incapable of doing anything good, and here's why. Even the most noble deed which comes from an unregenerate sinner is polluted in its motive and in its goal. And they may say or they may act as if that deed is seeking the true glory of God, but an unregenerate sinner cannot seek the true glory of God and cannot do anything which is in itself pleasing to God. So unregenerate sinners can do nothing but plan sinful plans, and all they can do is make sinful schemes, and all they can do is execute sinful deeds and make sinful choices. Sinners make sinful plans. If you think that's obvious, how about the second one? God holds sinners responsible for the sinful plans that they make. Now, I'm going somewhere with this, but I want you to keep this in mind. Sinners make sinful plans. God holds sinners responsible for the sinful plans that they make. And he will judge them for it. 
Sinners are responsible for their scheming, their plotting, their planning, their desires, their choices, their motives, their intentions, and all of it, and everything that they do. God holds sinners responsible for all of those things. A good example of this would be Joseph and his brothers. What did Joseph's brothers do to Joseph? They envied Joseph, they hated Joseph, they plotted Joseph's murder, then they relented from that, decided, well, we'll just throw him in the pit. They got him in the pit, then they just, the band of gypsies came by, they sold Joseph into slavery, and they got rid of him. Then they lied to their dad. All of that was a, a, a ruse to deceive Jacob and make him think that Joseph had died. All of that was their actions, was it not? Their sinful plans, what they plotted, what they desired, what they intended. Come out of their hatred with their sinful motives and everything behind it. Sinful men make sinful plans. Now I want you to look at that which trumps the sinful plans of men, and that is the sovereign plan or the sovereign purpose of God. Look what John says at the end of verse 30. No man laid his hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Their sinful plan was to seize him and to kill him. But John says no one laid their hand on him because his hour had not yet come. I love the simplicity of that. Do you notice that John does not give us any details as to how their plan was thwarted? Notice that? He doesn't tell us what we might want to know. He does tell us all that is necessary. Ultimately, though John doesn't tell us how the, their sinful plans were thwarted, all that you and I need to know is this. Ultimately, it goes back to the fact that it was not the Father's time. It was not His hour. Now I ask myself, was this a sort of a supernatural occurrence or a very natural, ordinary occurrence? How were their plans thwarted? Was it, uh, was it an act of direct divine intervention? Right there, standing in the crowd, and they think, okay, we've got to seize him. Now we're going to try. But I can't get my feet to move, and I can't, I can't lift up my arms. I have this desire, but suddenly I'm almost catatonic, and I can't, I gotta get my hand up here like this, and I really want to grab him, but I can't. I really want to move, but I can't. Was it an act of direct divine intervention where they sought and they tried to do something, but physically they were restrained from doing it? Or was it an act like in John 18 verse 6 when they arrive in the garden to arrest him, and they say, we're seeking Jesus of Nazareth, and he says, I am he, and they were bowled over backwards. Because they got a glimpse of his glory, and they were they were literally pushed backwards onto their backs. At the sight of him, and at the revelation, as minimal as it was, of his glory. Was it something like that? Or maybe it was something much more ordinary. Verse 31 says there were many who were coming to believe in him. Was it possible maybe that these Pharisees and these Jews decided that now's the time to seize him, and so they, they rushed into the crowd to do this, but they found that all of a sudden he had people defending him? Standing up and saying, no, 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 not today, not here, not now. Not our guy. Is that possible? Did the disciples put up a resistance? Was it something ordinary, something extraordinary? Did Jesus, like he did on another occasion, just simply blind their eyes to who he was and walk right out of the crowd throughout the midst of them? Were they prohibited in that way? Whether it was extraordinary or ordinary, we're not told. But listen, ultimately it goes back to this. It was not the Father's hour. That's the reason they were not able to seize him. Whether God works through ordinary means or extraordinary means, ultimately, the providence and the sovereignty of God are over all of those things. It might have been something extraordinary, supernatural, miraculous. It might have been something very ordinary. Right? They turned around, they made the plan, they turned back around, and he was gone walking off with his disciples, and they couldn't do it. It could have been something ordinary. But in all the ordinary and the extraordinary events of life, God is providentially, sovereignly in control. Remember Joseph and his brothers? Is there anything extraordinary about a father giving his son a coat? No, son going to check on his brothers in the field? Nothing supernatural about that or extraordinary. How about a band of gypsies coming along? No, this happened all the time. How about being sold into slavery? Other people were sold into slavery. Nothing supernatural about that. All of those ordinary things that happened in the life of Joseph ended up being the, the details of a very extraordinary story, right? Because the providence and the sovereignty and the hand of God was in all of those details. So we see the sinful plans of men, 
And we also see the sovereign hand or the sovereign plan of God. Ultimately, his hour was not yet. And that's the overarching, that is the overarching principle of this whole verse. It was not his time. It was not his hour. By hour, John is referring to a specific point, a specific time in the plan of the Father that the Son knew was coming and the Son was aware of. The Father knew the day of the Son's death. The Son knew the day of his death. He knew that his time was not yet. And I believe that's why he was unfearful in the temple. That's why he's not running and cowering. He knew in the sovereign plan of God what the Father's plan was. He knew he was not going to die at the Feast of Tabernacles by stoning. He knew that he was to give his life as a ransom for many as the sacrificial lamb, the Passover lamb, on a cross in Jerusalem six months from now. And so he's unfearful. Because the overarching consideration is the hour that the Father has appointed for the Son and all that the Son came to do. And everything, by the way, in the Gospel of John is moving forward towards this hour. Everything is going to culminate in this hour. And I want you to notice in John's Gospel, and I'm just going to turn to a couple places. You can listen to me, read them if you want. But Jesus makes reference of this hour that the Father had appointed. And this is interesting. As we get closer and closer to the crucifixion of Christ, Jesus makes mention of it more and more often. The hour that has come and the hour that is there. John chapter 2, verse 4. You remember at the feast and the wedding, Mary, his mother, said, they're out of wine. And Jesus said to her, what is that to me? My hour is not yet come. In other words, Jesus was aware of a timetable that the Father had put upon him and that he lived in according to. And as the one who was sent by the Father to do all the Father's will, he kept that timetable perfectly. Perfectly. Then in John chapter 7, we read of this hour. Verse 6, Jesus said, My time is not yet here, but your time is always opportune. Do you remember that? Verse 9, My time is not yet fully come. He knew that there was a time for him to reveal publicly, and there was a time when that was inappropriate. And he's referring to that timetable that was appointed to him by the Father. Then later on here in verse seven, in chapter seven, verse thirty, Jesus makes mention of that his hour, or sorry, John makes mention that Jesus' hour had not yet come. And then I want you to look over to chapter eight, verse twenty. Later on, these words he spoke in the treasury, and as he taught in the temple, and no one seized him, because his hour had not yet come. No one seized him because his hour had not yet come. Same thing as in John seven. Turn over to John chapter twelve, verse twenty three. Verse 23, and Jesus answered them saying, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now this is very close to his death. This is right within weeks of his crucifixion. And now he's making mention of this hour. Now the hour has come. Back in chapter 7 and 8, the hour is not yet. Not yet. Not yet. Not yet. John's building this tension. Now in chapter 12, the hour has come. He's raised Lazarus from the dead. The Jews, we find out in chapter 11, are plotting his death and saying we have to do something or they're going to come in, they're going to take our nation from us. And now they are beginning to put all of their plans into motion. And they're saying, and then now Jesus says, now the hour has come. The hour that I've been telling you disciples about for three years, now the hour has come. This is the time. Now look at chapter, uh, look at verse 24. You can tell that he's speaking of his death. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and it dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Down in verse 27 of chapter 12, now my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. He's speaking of his death. Chapter 13, verse 1, Jesus was aware of the hour. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Jesus was aware of that hour. Look at chapter 16, verse 32. Two more references, 16, verse 32. Jesus said, Behold, an hour is coming, 
and has already come for you to be scattered, each to his own home, and to leave me alone, and yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. This is the night before he died. Chapter 17, verse 1. So keenly aware of of Jesus, of, of the Father's timetable was Jesus, and of the Father's hour, that he actually begins his high priestly prayer by referring to that hour. Verse 1. Jesus, lifting his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. So back in John chapter 7, what hour is Jesus speaking of, or John speaking of? The time of his death. Everything, listen, everything in the Gospel of John is moving toward this hour. This is the whole point of the Word becoming flesh and dwelling among us that John introduced us to back in chapter 1. The whole point was that he came to die and to offer himself as a ransom and a sacrifice, and everything is pushing toward this hour. But in spite of all of the sinful plans of men, they can do nothing because of the providential plan of God. The Father has appointed a time. When that time comes, then the Son will die. Not a moment sooner, and not a moment later, because everything is going to happen on God's timetable. And God's timetable is contrary to the sinful intentions of the men. There is no reason why those men should not have been able to seize Jesus, humanly speaking, just strictly from a human perspective. There's enough people there, right? There's enough people in the temple that they could have done that. In fact, they send the officers later on to do it. The reason, the fact that they were unable to seize him and have their way with him is completely inexplicable unless it was not the time. But it was not the Father's time for the Son to die, and so the Son could not die. He could not die. Now, what do we make of this? I want to give you two things. First, you and I can rest in the fact that God is sovereign over the sinful plans of men. God is sovereign over the sinful plans of men. Did these men have intentions to kill Jesus? And they certainly did, right? Did they move to put their plans into action? Yes, they did. Had not God intervened, what would have happened? They would have killed Jesus. That was what they wanted to do. So they did all of that. They planned it. They purposed it. They meant to put their plans into action and have him crucified. And there's no no reason why they shouldn't have been able to do that, humanly speaking, except it was not the Father's time. And God rules in the affairs of men. And because it was not the Father's time for the Son to die, the Son could not die. Now you say, well, maybe if they had gotten, let's say they had 50 men. What if they had gotten 100 men? Could they have seized him then? Was it simple manpower that they lacked? Was it resources? Maybe they needed 100 armed men. You know what? If it were not the predetermined plan of God, the predestined plan of God to hang His Son on a cross, there is no army on the face of the earth that could have put Him on that cross. No matter what their intentions are, no matter what their designs are, no matter how many, how much manpower they have, they could not have hung Him on the cross if it was not the Father's will for them to do that. That was the predetermined sovereign plan of God to crucify His Son in the place of sinners. And that is why it could not happen until that appointed hour. It could not happen. And I ask you this, when the appointed hour came, was it possible for it to not happen? Is it possible for the plan of God to fail? Is it possible for the purpose of God to fail? Is it possible that God, having given His Word in Isaiah 53 and Zechariah 12 and Psalm 22, that His Son would die, that the Messiah would die, and it would be a horrible death, that He would be pierced? Was it possible that that plan should fail to come to pass and that the prophets would remain unfulfilled? It was impossible. It's impossible for it to have been otherwise. Couldn't have happened earlier. Couldn't have happened later. It had to happen. It had to happen on time, and there was no other option. So when it comes to the sinful plans of men and the sovereign plan of God, who gets their way? God does. 
Always, without exception, God gets his way. He rules over the plans of sinful men. Let me give you a couple of scripture references. Job 23, verse 13, he is unique, and who can turn him? And what his soul desires, that he does. For he performs what is appointed for me, and many such decrees are with him. Psalm 33, verses 10 and 11, The Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, and the plans of his heart from generation to generation. Proverbs 19, 21, Many are the plans in a man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord will stand. That's a paraphrase of John chapter 7, verse 30. Many are the plans in a man's heart, but it is God's purpose which rules and which stands. And no matter what man plans, it cannot be other than what God has allowed or caused or decreed shall happen. It cannot be otherwise. Proverbs 21, verse 30. There is no wisdom and no understanding and no counsel against the Lord. And then speaking of the destruction of the nation of Assyria, a very horrible thing that happened to the nation of Israel, listen to what the Lord says in Isaiah 14, verses 24 to 27. The Lord of hosts has sworn, saying, Surely, just as I have intended, so it has happened. And just as I have planned, so it will stand. To break Assyria in my land, and I will trample him on my mountains. Then his yoke will be removed from them, and his burden removed from their shoulder. This is a plan devised against the whole earth. For this is the hand that is stretched out against all the nations. For the Lord of hosts has planned, and who can frustrate it? And as for his stretched out hand, who can turn it back? Isaiah 46, verse 10 says, The Lord declares the end from the beginning, and from ancient times that which has not been done, saying, My purpose will be established, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. How much of God's good pleasure gets accomplished? All of it. How much of His good pleasure, what He desires to do, is frustrated by the plans of sinful men? None of it. None of it. Say, how does all this come together? We're getting to that in just a second. Ephesians 1, verse 11 says, He works all things after the counsel of His own will. So when it comes to the sinful plans of men and the sovereign purposes of God, who gets their way? The sovereign purposes of God always trumpet. So as God rules and he is sovereign over the sinful plans of men. The second thing that we can draw from this is this. God uses the sinful plans of men to accomplish his purposes. And this is where your mind goes, wow. God uses the sinful plans of men to accomplish his purposes. Let's go back to another illustration, Joseph and his brothers. Who was to blame for what happened to Joseph? Joseph's brothers or God? Who gets the blame? Who's held eternally responsible? Obviously, it's Joseph's brothers, right? It was their envy. It was their hatred. It was their murderous intention. It was all their sinful choices, their plans, their actions, their schemes, all of that. Joseph's brothers bear all of the burden for that. But you know what Job said, or Jacob, Joseph says in Genesis 50, verse 20? What you intended for evil, God intended for good. It's the same word used, intended, intended. Both Joseph's brothers and God were intending the same event. Was it God's intention that Joseph should be sold into slavery? Of course it was. If God did not want that to happen, could it have happened? Could Joseph have been sold into slavery and then God say, Oh, I did my best to stop that. I don't know how it happened. I don't know how they were able to outsmart me, but it did. That's what I get, that's what I get when I give to sinful creatures a measure of sovereignty. They just go running all over my plans and I'm frustrated now forever. Now I don't know what I'm gonna do. Was that how God responded to that? No, Job, Jacob said, or Joseph, I'll go through every Old Testament character until I get the right one. 
Jacob said, what you intended for evil, that event, you selling me into slavery, that was your intention. You intended it with evil intentions. God intended the exact same thing, but with a good intention, in order to save many people alive through this famine. So God and Joseph's brothers both intended the exact same thing. But, and it's as John Calvin said, what Joseph's brothers willed with a wicked will, God willed with a holy will. Both of them were willing the same event. Both of them wanted the same thing to happen. God wanted Joseph sold into slavery, and he used the wicked, rebellious, sinful, murderous intentions of his brothers to accomplish that end. God intended that for good. Joseph's brothers intended it for evil. Who bears the responsibility for that sin and that crime? Did God force Joseph's brothers to do that? Did he coerce them to sin? Of course he did. That's stupid. That's ludicrous. That's heresy. He didn't coerce them to sin. Joseph's brothers didn't stand there and say, you know what, I don't know, it's like somebody else is moving my arms and my mouth. I really don't want to do this, but I'm being forced by a higher power to do all of this stuff that I really don't want to do. We love Joseph, we don't want any harm to fall to him, but I feel compelled by some outside force to sell him into slavery and try and kill him, and then lie to my father and keep this ruse up for 20 years. That's not what Joseph did, that's not what they did. They did exactly what they wanted to do, exactly what they desired to do and planned to do, and it was in their heart. And God was intending that what they were intending, he would use for good. God uses the sinful plans of men to accomplish his purposes. Now I want you to see it in relationship to the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn over to Acts chapter 2. I'm going to close there quickly with two passages. Acts chapter 2. Look at verse 22. This is Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. Men of Israel... Listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. This man, delivered over to be crucified by what? It was the predetermined plan and the foreknowledge of God. This man was predestined to be crucified. So who bears the responsibility or the blame? Who gets punished for the death of Jesus? God, because he intended it and he predestined it? No, that's why Peter says, you nailed to a cross. You did the deed. You bear the responsibility. You sinned. It was your plot, your ploy, your scheme, your sinful choices, your wicked desires that did this. You nailed him to a cross and you put him up there at the hands of godless men, the Romans. Who bears responsibility for the death of Christ? Those who had him crucified. But guess what? That was the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God that did that. That was the intention of the Father from eternity past. It couldn't have been otherwise. But does is that a reason why they should not be held responsible for their sin, just because God predestined that that occur? No, because God uses the sinful plans of men to accomplish his sovereign purposes, just as he did in the death of Christ. There was no more egregiously horrific sinful act than to put to death the sinless Son of God. That was the most horrific thing that has ever been done in the history of mankind. And yet, that very thing was the thing that the Father desired to have done. He intended it, and it pleased the Father to crush Him in our place. It was the will of God. He predestined that it should occur, and that predestining act was what delivered Him into the hands of godless men, and they did the deed. They bear the responsibility. God predestined that it occur. Look in Acts chapter 4. That's more than, Acts chapter 2 is more than just an anomaly. In case you're thinking that, well, yeah, it could mean that. That's just a 
One of those weird sayings you find in the New Testament that I don't know how to explain, but I don't want to try now. Acts chapter 4, look at verse... I'm looking for it here. Hold on a second. 27, right, there it is. Verse 27. For truly in this city there were gathered together against you... This is a prayer. They're praying. The apostles are praying. In this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you appointed, both Herod, Pontius Pilate, along with Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. What are they referring to? The execution of the Son of God. That was the predetermined, predestined plan of God. Could that not have happened? It had to happen in order to fulfill the prophets. That was the intention of God. His sovereign plan was to deliver his Son up. But who did the dirty deed? Herod, Pontius Pilate, Gentile sinners, Jewish sinners, and Judas Iscariot's in that mix too, right? You know how many people had to collude together in order for that thing to happen? All of them with wicked motives and wicked desires and intentions. And yet guess what? That was the predetermined plan of God. What happened on Good Friday? Nothing other than what God had planned from eternity past. Nothing other than what he predicted and he said was going to come to pass through the prophets. Every last thing was intended by God, that he be sold for 30 pieces of silver, betrayed by Judas Iscariot, that he be pierced for our transgressions, that he be bruised for our iniquities, the, the, the bruising and the, uh, the beating and the stripes that he received, all of that, the spear in the side, the nailing of the hands and the feet, hanging on a cross, the thirsting, the, the casting of lots for his garments at the foot of the cross, the scattering of all of his disciples, all of that was the predetermined plan of God. It could not have been otherwise. That was what the Father purposed. And yet how did the Father bring to pass his sovereign plan? By the plans of wicked and sinful men. And yet God does not bear any responsibility for that. God didn't sin, and he didn't make anybody to sin. He used the sinful plans of men and the sinful actions of men to accomplish his eternal glory. Now listen, Christian, this should be of incredible comfort to you. You say, why is that? Would you rather rest in a God who is completely sovereign and completely good Or would you rather that your destiny and God's purposes for you rested upon the fickle feelings and the sinful schemes of six billion people on the face of this planet? Where would you rather have it? Because God is sovereign, we must trust Him. Because God is good, it is our joy to trust Him. You get that? Because he is sovereign, we must trust him. And because he is good, it is our joy and our delight to trust him. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you that you are worthy of our trust and our confidence. We thank you that it was your predetermined plan and your predestined purpose from eternity past to deliver up your Son in place of us sinners. Thank you for such a blessed sacrifice, such a wonderful atonement, and such a glorious plan of salvation. And thank you, O Father, for making it known to us. We thank you that nothing can happen to your Son and nothing can happen to us unless it is the appointed hour for all things rest under your hands, including the sinful schemes of men. We delight in knowing that you are good because we can trust you. And we do express our confidence and our trust in you. We thank you that your purposes for us do not rest upon our ability to cooperate with you or our willingness to help out or anything that we can contribute, but simply and solely by your grace and in your goodness that we can trust you in all of that. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting kootenaichurch.org. 
We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.